My name is Jim Farley. I'm the CEO of Ford, a company I fell in love with when I was a little boy. And this is Drive. Last August, I drove all the way up to uh, North Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. So basically drove from Fairbanks all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. Today, my guest is Luke Russer. And there's long stretches of that road where you don't see another soul. It's like the loneliest road on earth. It's just me and the road. And there's just something that is so intimate about that. Luke is the son of two famous journalists. Of course, Tim Russert, his father, was well-known, covering so many important events in our lives. And he's wrote this beautiful book called Look For Me There. It's a trip around the world and a journey of discovering and dealing with loss of his father at a young age. When you write a book, there's so much pressure on getting the title. The publisher is going, do you have a title yet? Do you have a title yet? And I did something that my father had, had taught me uh, many years ago, which was that, you know, when you have to come to a conclusion, it's good to take out a legal pad and start writing something down. And he learned that from his dad, Big Russ, a former garbage man in South Buffalo, New York, who drove a Crown Vic till the day he died. And I sat there and I said, you know, what is this book about? It's obviously that I'm searching for something. Right? I'm looking. Where have I been looking for? What am I looking for? I'm always looking for dad. And then it just clicked. And I went back to when I was a young boy. My father used to take me to Oriole Park or Camden Yards, right up 95 from D.C. in Baltimore. And there was a very hot, humid, mid-Atlantic summer day. And we were walking in the concourse. And he got separated. He was holding my hand. He got separated with this crutch of people. And I fell behind him about 10, 15 yards. But he never lost sight of me as I sort of brought up this wave of people. And he turned back around and he put his arm on my shoulder and clasped my hand with his thumb. And he pointed to this hot dog stand with a big Oreo bird on it. And he said, buddy, if we're ever separated, just look for me there. Uh, but we'll never be separated. And those were the landmarks. Because before the cell phone era, you always would meet people at landmarks. Yes. And so he would say to me, hey, I'm going to pick you up at the airport. Look for me there. This coffee shop or after a rock concert. Hey, I'm going to be by that parking sign. Look for me there. And it clicked. I go, you know what? That's so true because I'm still looking for him to some degree. And uh, I think it worked on a lot of levels. So I owe, I owe dad that one. I, I think that's one of those moments where you you go into a very meditative place and you're writing things down and, and, and your lost loved ones, they talk to you in that way. Totally. I, I have a question. The podcast is all about, you know, cars, but also trips. Yeah. And um I took a road trip across the country when I was like 15, I want to say, without my driver's license. And um, it was a coming of age. My parents didn't know about it. You could you could disappear back then. It's much harder to do you that now. I, I talked to the king of Spain. He's like, yeah, the, Jim, the, the best trip I ever had was a road trip in a Mustang Man. in America. I ran in a, a Mustang. I drove up the coast. And it's like the king of Spain. I'm like, Great. wow, this road trip thing is kind of so... For you, dissect a road trip with all your journeys, you know, yeah. from hitchhiking to like you've done it yeah, all. Right. Um, what's a road trip to you? When you, you hear that, what's a road trip? There's So I just did one that I loved recently. Um, I had driven all Big Sur in Southern California up to where my mom's mm -hmm. from in the Bay Area. But then I said, all right, I'm going to go from the Bay Area all the way up to the uh, middle of Oregon. So I drove yep. by Eureka, the Oregon coast. It was absolutely stunningly beautiful. But what I liked about it was that around every turn, there's something new and there's something engaging. 
and you learn about people, you learn about culture, uh, you learn funny facts about you know, little towns. There's a town in California called Weed. No surprise there. Right? <laughs> and uh, it's actually a town that was in uh, Of Mice and Men, John Steinbeck. It's where George and Lenny yep. were fleeing from. So those are ones that are, you know, that you, you meet people on the way and it's fun. And there's some more intense ones. So when you say road trip, Ed, there's a fun ones like, hey, let's go load up at 7-Eleven and get all the Doritos and the snacks. And, you know, let's find these roadside bars and let's go eat the steak and all the foods and whatever is here. And then there's ones that are more intense where you kind of get that feeling of just you, the car, the road. And it allows for introspection. Uh, and it also it allows you to sort of push yourself a little bit. And I've had one of those in Montana that I liked a lot. Uh, and really get out there. I had the dream about doing this drive. There's that Bob Seger song, Roll Me Away, right? Oh, yeah. He goes, 12 hours out of Mackinac City, I stopped by to have a brew. So I actually did that on Google Maps, and it's Mackinac City to Fargo. That's the 12-hour drive. So I was like, I got to do that. <laughs> I want to do that. I one. love that song. Yeah, and, fantastic. Uh, he gets he gets the girl in oh, the bar, yeah. and she goes for a while. And then she goes home. Then she's like, no, nah, can't I, do it. not for me. And then he gets to the Continental Divide, and he looks one side or the other, and he's got to decide what to do. He sees the, that's a great that's song. That's fantastic. So- what came first, the three and a half years on the road or the book? Oh, no, was the, 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 I never intended to write a book. So I left NBC in 2016. Uh, I thought I'd travel for six months, maybe a year, sort of clear my head. And when I started to travel, being a journalist, former journalist, I started to keep journals. It was a sort of way to ground me. And I did that through all these countries and all these experiences. And I got to a point in 2018 where I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was in a tough place. And I said, you know, I'm going to look back over these journals and just sort of look for guidance. And as I read through the journals, I started to realize I got something here. This is a very unique experience. Uh, but also, I'm definitely on a grief journey. I'm on a self-discovery journey. And I think there's something here that can help people. And so I said to some close friends of mine, I said to my mom, I said, I'm going to give a stab at this because if it helps one kid who, who lost their dad or lost their loved one feel a little less lost, then I've done my job. How old were you when your father passed away, Luke? I was 22 years old and, you know, he died on a Friday. And I like to say that over that weekend, I, I felt like I aged 10 to 15 years. Suddenly a lot of burden of responsibility was placed on my shoulders. He died on June 13th, 2008. And on June 12th, 2008, I was kind of this happy-go-lucky college kid, you know, fresh out of college and wanted to take a gap year, maybe some traveling. But I was pretty, pretty low-key, kind of like free, free and easy down the road, right? And he passed away. And, uh, you know, five, five days later, I'm giving a eulogy at Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Georgetown. And Barack Obama and John McCain and Ethel Kennedy and Nancy Pelosi are all in the, all in the rows looking at me. Uh, you grow up pretty quick in that situation. <laughs> and looking back now, as you process the loss of your dad, uh, do you have a different perspective on those early days when you lost your father? It's interesting. You know, I go back and I think there was this young guy, 22-year-old Luke. And I think for many years, I held on to that kid because he was so, he was trying so hard trying so hard to please his dad, live up to his dad's legacy. I think he was trying very hard to take care of his mom um, and bring a sort of gen sense of warmth. I mean, a lot of people said to me when I was a young guy in my early 20s, 
you know, we see your father's twinkle in your eye. Mm. And I think for many years, I tried to hold that flame of legacy alive. I think retrospectively, it didn't allow for the grief process to really start. Uh, because if I ever really sat in that grief, I'd have to acknowledge that dad was really gone. It was easier to sort of move forward. And, and I think that now, years later, I realize that there's real value in sort of hitting a pause button and looking inward and sitting in uncomfortable feelings like grief. You learn a lot about yourself. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I looked back at that kid and I said, man, he, he had that youthful <laughs> stupidity and persistence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need that too. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so three and a half years is a long time on the road. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious how six months turned into three and a half years. Well, it all started in, in the backwoods of Maine in the uh, 2004 F-150 that my father <laughs> gave me when I graduated from high school. Uh, and he had good taste. Great, he had very good taste. I still got that truck, still running. <laughs> and I started to say, look, I want uh, a reset. And basically what happened was I had been working on Capitol Hill for NBC News. Um, and I had some success. And I won an Emmy. And I was deep in the thick of political television. Was on TV all the time. And I think from the outside world, everyone saw that there's this very gilded, easy path ahead. It's a lot of hard work, but it's a path of, of success. And, and I had sort of gotten to close to the top of the mountain. And I had a chance meeting with House Speaker John Boehner, who I covered rather aggressively at the Capitol. He saw me one day, he goes, I want to talk to you. Come to my office. So I thought he was going to chew me out about something that he didn't like in my reporting. And he called me into his office and he asked a very simple question. He goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, sir, you're the Speaker of the House. You called me into your office. What the hell do you mean what am I doing here? I'm, I'm here to see you. He goes, no, no, what are you doing here on Capitol Hill? He goes, I've seen people come here 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's very transactional. They never really know another world. They don't know how life really is in other cities and other states and even other countries. You'd be doing yourself a service if you got out of here for a little bit of time to figure out if this is really what you want to do. And that sort of got this voice that had been inside my head for a while about who are you independent of Washington, D.C.? Who are you independent of your last name? That voice got louder after that conversation. And my mom, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in the 1960s in Colombia, she had always said to me, you know, I learned most about myself when I was traveling. That especially at a young age, I got to measure myself up against the world. I became more comfortable in uncertainty. So I felt almost a nudge in that direction. So I start off driving in Maine in that F-150 truck with my dog, kind of John Steinbeck travels with Charlie. Yes, I read that book recently. (laughs) Great book. And I start going to different countries. And when I go to different places where I'm so far removed from my past life, you have time to think and you have time to process. And once I started to do that, I wanted to know, okay, who are you? But with anything, you know, my, as you read in the book, my mom sort of says, well, it's got to stop at some point. You don't want to be a professional nomad. And you got to be careful of not to mix finding a deeply internal journey of self-discovery with escapism. And I think I got to a point where I was able to see, okay, I was doing two things. I was simultaneously looking for something, which was my own identity, but I was running away from something. And that was the grief of losing dad. And it was when I finished traveling and I sat in that, that I was able to comprehend everything. And that's where the journals helped out a lot. I, I, um, I read about your mom. She seems pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. She's a badass. That's a good way of putting it. Um, you mentioned your mom in the Peace Corps. 
what else did you get from your mom during the trip? It's an interesting question. I was, I grew up much closer to my dad and I'm an only child. We had a very tight relationship. Uh, He was my best friend. It was sort of the good cop, bad cop with my mom and him. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was much more of a disciplinarian. So for many years, I resented that. I was like, oh my gosh, my mom's always on my case. You know, she, nothing's ever good enough. If I bring home a B plus, you know, why wasn't it an A minus? Or I bring home an A minus, why wasn't it an A? There is always this sort of, you, you've been blessed with so much, you need to do better. A lot of Catholic guilt involved in that. We're, we're good at guilt, Catholics. No, we're very good at guilt, as you know. And I think for many years, that put me in a place where I felt like nothing really worked with her. I couldn't connect. And for uh, and especially in my childhood, I would go to countless ball games and political conventions and stuff with dad. We did tons of overnight trips, but it wasn't until my thirties that I actually did an overnight trip with my mom, you know, one-on-one mother and son. And when I went traveling with her in Latin America, I saw for the first time how she was fearless, was hailing taxis off the chaotic streets, would go in the back of buses, you know, didn't care what hotel she was staying. I mean, it just very much of a Peace Corps traveler, like a real someone who was very comfortable uh, in the elements. And when I saw that firsthand, how tenacious she was, I finally understood, oh, okay, here's someone because she was a woman in the, in the early 60s and had to face a lot of sexism, wow. always had to work 10 times harder to get anything she ever had. And so she admits, she, she saw me a little bit soft as this kid who grew up with privilege and didn't have to go sure. through the same things that she did. She probably resented that a little bit. But I didn't understand it until I actually traveled there and I saw it firsthand. I go, okay. All those years where she was saying, do more, be tougher, be stronger, you can do it, comes from this. And so I, I, I understood that and it made our relationship a lot better because that resentment turned into understanding. And I think if you can get that with your, with your kids or your parents, you, you've done a lot. Pretty amazing. Did, did your dad ever reach out to you during the trip? You know, it's a great question. Um, one of the things I write about in the book is the prevalence of rainbows. And when my dad passed away the day of his funeral, one of the songs that was playing as people were processing out was Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which my father loved that song. And lo and behold, on that day in Washington, there's a beautiful rainbow that went over the Kennedy Center and went over the city. And I saw that, I go, Dad, I see you. So every time I see a rainbow, I would think of my father. And that happened a lot on the road. There would be moments I detail in in New Zealand, and I'm going through kind of a tough time. And there's the rainbow. Okay. I uh, saw one, the 10-year anniversary of his passing in Iceland. That uh, was sort of his way of saying hi. So I was able to get to places where I really felt his presence and really felt his guidance. And it was later on uh, when I was writing the book, shortly after I was almost done with it, a friend of mine said to me, you know, you can talk to your dad every day. You just have to get into that headspace to listen. And so I, I, I do that for sure. You can, you can imagine what they would say to you, but also you can start to think, okay, I was so close to him. I know what he, what he thinks. And it pushes me in, in a good direction. I, I was you know, listening to Anderson Cooper's uh, podcast on loss. Yeah. This whole idea of, 
keeping that person alive. That's a thing for you. Like you were, you were able to get to that space. It sounds like. Yeah. And I think what's nice about it is you don't feel that alone. And I think a lot of times when folks lose somebody close to them, that uh, feeling of aloneness is really hard. But once you get to a place where you can be comfortable enough in that, you're undefeated. You can't mm-hmm. be beaten. And I think for me, keeping people's memories alive, uh, it helps me more, be more comfortable in those periods of aloneness where you feel distraught. And it's also fun. Like, for example, yesterday, there was a lightning storm and my uh, air conditioning unit short-circuited. So they had to replace the motor and it was, it was a costly repair. And uh, I go, well, this has to be under warranty. And I go back and I go, oh my gosh, the warranty wasn't filled out correctly when it was installed. Uh, so it was only a five-year warranty, not a 10-year warranty. And as soon as I said that, I heard my dad's voice in mm-hmm. my head. With this, Buddy, you never trust the contractor to fill out the warranty. You always got to fill out the warranty yourself. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's like those moments, they pop up. Um, my My dad was, you know, had a, a big job in banking and and he had a kind of storied career in banking and every time I was working on a car or thinking about a car he'd say no, no don't do that <laughs> that's you know you're going to be doing something else with your life and I decided to follow my love which is cars which he didn't have in common but um so I'm very interested because your legacy even professionally was from such a positive place yeah did you feel pressure to go down that road like, how did that happen? Because I, I I, did not listen to that voice. I'm curious why you did. I think I was always raised uh, with a sense of duty. And the idea behind oh. that being, um, I was basically the first member of my family to, to come up in any sort of privilege. And my parents reminded me that frequently. And my grandfather was a garbage man. My mom's dad was a beer distributor. And my father was the first member of his family to go to college. So I grew up with this sort of, you know, you're the one in the family who's been very blessed. You're the one in the family that's had the most opportunity. You have to make something out of that and figure that out. And um, long story short is that that was something that sort of had a deep effect on me. And then I think when my father passed, I wanted to sort of uphold that legacy. But it was not easy. I mean, I knew I was going to get there was going to be charges of nepotism. And I knew I was going to have to deal with a lot of critics. But um, it made me work a lot harder, not only to honor him, but also because I knew there was going to be a, a target on my back. I think as the years went on, I, I, I got to a, a level of success. That question of like, okay, you did it. You know, now what? And I knew that if I were to, you know, let's say, take over Meet the Press or be on the Today Show every day, I was like, it would be nice, but I don't know if I'd be truly fulfilled. You know, it's like, hey, Jim, you're on Wall Street. You could be the CEO of Goldman Sachs. You're like, yeah, okay, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. So for me, I kind of realized that the last thing in the world my father would want is for me to reach a level of success and be unhappy and unfulfilled. Uh, and so that's why I decided to sort of, you know, go out there and, and go on my own, my own path. And someone who I've, um, I admire and and I've, I read a lot about it, it's JFK Jr. Because here's somebody who dealt with impossible expectations all the yes. time. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he said in an interview, which is he said, you know, I got to a place where I realized that 
if for anything to work for me, it was I was going to have to get there myself. Like I was going to have to feel it. I was going to have to feel comfortable and get there at my own pace. And once I started to do that, things became more clear for me. And I said, wow, that, that, that speaks to me. I feel that. Totally. So uh, just in the end, any advice for me as the head of Ford? And, and what, what didn't I ask you? My, so here's my advice for you as the head of Ford. I, I have a 2009 Ford Escape that I'd love to upgrade, but I can't because they, the, the new ones won't fit in my tiny garage. So why are these cars all so big now? They're so long. Can we get some, like a compact SUV that'll fit in a city carriage garage? That's that's what I need. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, I think the, the root cause of that is, well, you know this because you travel around the world. I've been in the my industry for 40 years. I worked in Europe twice and all around the world. And, um, you know, in the US, the whole infrastructure from parking spaces to highways to the width of lanes to pretty much every part of the driving experience is more liberal in yeah. terms of size, mm -hmm. dramatically so. Yeah. Uh, actually kind of hysterically, uh, comically, so large that all the efficiency that you see in India or uh, North Africa or, you know, Egypt, where every square millimeter, every millimeter matters for customers, just doesn't matter here. So I, I think it's just, um, it's just actually, this sounds really weird, but it's because maybe of all the thousands of decisions that other people have made in America that would make big cars just fine. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I hope uh, I hope there's a smaller SUV in the pipeline. <laughs> Actually, the the most likely scenario for that will be a really affordable uh, small EV because yeah. EVs literally are much more efficient because of the lack of the internal combustion and most of the the energy source, the batteries you can put on the floor of the vehicle. And so it's a lot more, you know, efficient, you know, overall lengthwise. How do you feel overall? And you know, one of the things I always loved about Ford was the ethos behind it, right? And my grandfather was internally loyal to the American auto markets. I think a lot of that is a post-World War II you know, ideology. How do we get that in terms of young people now? Because I feel like there's such a, the trucks are there, but I feel with other vehicles, there's really no, there's not a real American loyalty anymore. Some people care a lot. Some people don't. Yeah. My mom grew up in Michigan. Her dad was an hourly worker for Ford. And my, my, my dad was a, you know, well-to-do executive with a bank and he got a Mercedes and my mom's like, she never drove the Mercedes. <laughs> uh, actually, ironically, this labor dispute may change people's minds. In Germany, as you know, people will buy a Volkswagen because they know it's built and engineered by Volkswagen in Germany. Sure. Uh, so I, I think <clears throat> we've gotten to a point now where the company I worked like at, at, at Toyota or Tesla have been so successful without unionized labor and the premium for that labor is so high now that we have to we have to ask the question if there's a two thousand dollar premium for unionized labor versus 
non-unionized labor for, let's say, a RAV4 versus your escape, right. you know, uh, we haven't seen people willing to pay for it. Right. But I do think younger people in general are more informed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder out loud if that over time will mean that they'll make a conscious choice, whereas their parents and even their grandparents really didn't care as long as it fit their monthly payment. You know, they some of them had the loyalty. Right. But we find it on our professional. We're, we're, we're biggest in transit and super duties. You know, people really use their vehicle for work. Yeah. We're towing all the time, plowing driveways, you know, HVAC people, plumbers, electricians, and they care deeply about that. They care deeply about. So working people, firemen, um, tradespeople, uh, police, you know, they're not going to buy a foreign vehicle because they want to make sure that the intellectual property and the, and the labor benefits American families. And they're smart enough to know that. So I think it does matter depending on the market. And I'm actually kind of curious how my son will look at this. Yeah. He's 15. Right. I think he may look at it differently than than my generation is just totally opportunistic. Let's hope because I think there is something to be said about uh, American labor and American intellectual property. And uh, yes. if, if you just think about all the jobs that it creates and it sustains, it's an important thing. It is. Well, it's been so, and I literally could talk to you for <laughs> hours because Honestly, if I wasn't a CEO for it, I'd be on the PCT or taking my Harley down to down to Argentina. Uh, so I would give anything for the time, and I just hope I don't get old enough. I can't do it. Uh, you'll get but um, but I will say I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I've learned so much from you about how you look at your the legacy of your family and your own life's journey as a positive thing, and I think we can all take that and learn from it. And uh, I certainly have today. So thank you for your time. I really mean it. Well, thank you so much for having me on the uh, on the podcast and for talking about Look For Me There. And uh, give me a good mechanic in DC too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Luke. Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise. Our production staff includes Julian Att, Eva Walchover, and Kristen Muller with help from Lori Arpin, Krista Gentile, Max Owen Dunell, Catherine Sanders, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Our host is Jim Farley, and this is Drive.